Exodus chapter 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, 
and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. How many of you have watched a masterclass video online? Some people. Which class did you watch? Was it any good? Sorry, I lost it in the coughs. Cooking. Are you a better cook as a consequence? Ah. This is officially not an advert for masterclass sessions. Uh, but I haven't had an opportunity to do them yet. I would actually quite like to do it because um, Steph Curry's somebody, if you don't know about him, he's an American basketball player. He's a really committed Christian. He's point guard for the Golden State Warriors. And he's got a session on basketball lessons and all that you've learned from teamwork. But it's not just basketball or cooking. There's loads of stuff uh, on their website. So Aaron Sorkin has got a session on screenwriting. Uh, if music is your thing, then you can learn from Ixat Perlman, Yo-Yo Ma, and Hans Zimmer. Uh, you can do stuff on science and technology. And what a surprise, there's loads of stuff on leadership. So you can do sessions on business leadership with Starbucks's Howard Schultz. You can do stuff with Disney's Bob Iger. You can learn about entrepreneurial leadership from Richard Branson. Presidents Bush and Clinton have got lessons from their presidencies, some of which you won't want to imitate. And on and on it goes. There's loads of stuff we can learn from all of those people. But the Masterclass website isn't the only place, or indeed the best place, to learn good principles for leadership. I don't know that Matthew was thinking about this segue. He hadn't seen my sermon. I imagine he wasn't. But as we see general principles in God's common grace that we can learn from the world, there are specific God-given principles in his word that help us even more clearly. So, here's a question. Who is going to make your Old Testament masterclass leadership list? Have a little think about who might come up. On most people's list, Nehemiah is going to come out pretty quick because his whole book is a case study in godly leadership. If we're going to write some names down on a whiteboard, we're probably going to come up uh, with David and Daniel pretty quickly and Hezekiah and Josiah are definitely going to be on that list. But no masterclass of Old Testament leadership is going to be complete without Jethro and Moses. Because these two men have not only got a huge amount to teach us about organizational charts and delegation, and we'll get to that, they also have so much to teach us about heart attitudes 
and relational struggles in leadership that we need to learn as well. And this morning, I want us to see six key lessons from Moses and Jethro about good and godly leadership. Now, the story of Exodus 18 is pretty straightforward as far as Old Testament narratives go. So the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 12, is a lovely story of a family reunion. Now, at some point, and we don't know exactly when, uh, Moses had sent his wife, Zipporah, and their two sons back home to Midian. But Jethro, Zipporah's dad, and Moses' father-in-law, has heard along the grapevine that God has done amazing things through Moses for God's people. So together they decide to meet Moses at, verse 5, the mountain of God. That's the same mountain that we know as Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Which matters because if you've been following with us through the book of Exodus, you know back in chapter 3, before God had sent Moses to Egypt, he had promised to bring him and the people back to the mountain of God. It's a place of fulfillment for Moses. And then verse 7 onwards, we've got this lovely window into a family's first get-together. We have a window into what they talk about. We get to see how Jethro responds to all of that, how his heart is full of wonder at what God has done. And then there's this lovely sense as they have their meal together that that Jethro, who's not a Jew, is being bound together with the people of God. It's a lovely family reunion. Second half of the chapter, we put some structure and systems in place to get Israel organized. Now, I know that might not be thrilling your world as you think about things that we could study in God's world right now. Structures and systems sounds a bit dry and boring, doesn't it? But we do like, as Joe was reminding us, to be challenged to tidy the things that are a mess and to think about clearing things up because it's for our good. And the same is true when it comes to leadership and systems within God's people. We're going to see that there wasn't good systems in place And it takes Jethro coming into the situation to work out that Moses is in a complete pickle. If we were to use our judicial system today as a comparison, Moses is functioning as the local magistrate and as the district high court and as the court of appeal and as the Supreme Court. And he's doing it all on his own for two million people. That's bonkers. (laughs) It's, It's unsustainable for Moses. And it is neglecting other capable leaders. And it is causing frustration for an entire nation of people who are not getting the justice and the help and the counsel that they need. And it takes a visit from Jethro for Moses to see it. Sometimes you get so lost in where you are that it's hard to see the way out. And perhaps it's just a bit of a blind spot. You've got so stuck in the routine that you can't really see outside the box. But Jethro comes, gives this amazing clarity to Moses of where he's stuck and how to fix it. And then Moses goes and appoints these other officials, which not only transforms his work-life balance, actually brings some sense of peace and speedier justice throughout a nation of the Israelites. So it's not a complicated story, but it's a remarkable story all the same. And I want us to see six principles of good and godly leadership from it. Leadership lesson number one. Good leaders 
humbly respect others. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for a minute. More than 40 years ago, he arrives in Midian. Remember, he was fleeing there from everything that had happened when he tried to save an Israelite and ended up killing an Egyptian. So he flees there with nothing. And Jethro gives him one of his own daughters as a wife. And then Jethro entrusts Moses with the family's flock, which was like their entire savings account. This is the wealth of the family. In many ways, for about four decades of his life, Moses was a Jethro-made man. But since Moses left, God has used Moses to rescue more than two million people from slavery. He's led God's people not only out of Egypt, but across the Red Sea, Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how in that period in the desert, God's people are now starting to whinge and complain, and Moses is the one that stands in the gap. He intercedes on behalf of the whinging and complaining people to God to protect and provide for them. Moses is no longer a Jethro-made man. He is a national leader in his own right. But godly leaders always Humbly respect others. It's what we see in verse 7. Moses doesn't just wait to receive Jethro and his family. He goes out to meet them. And he doesn't wait for, for Jethro to show that sign of honor and respect that was customary in their day. Moses is the one, at more than 80 years of age, who bows down and kisses the feet of His father-in-law, do you see how many times? I think it's 12 times throughout this chapter. Moses keeps reminding us that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. For all the things that Moses has become, Jethro is still not only his senior in age, but also his father-in-law. And Moses humbly respects him. Which all sounds pretty straightforward. Till you think about how you might need to show that to somebody This afternoon, or tomorrow, or this week. Because pride is a speedy and sneaky sin. It is so, so tempting to want others to think highly of us. As our circumstances change, we want them to be the one that honors and pays respect to us for what's happened And can be slow to put this very simple principle into practice. Moses shows us what godly leadership looks like. It is lived out of God's grace. And because that's the foundation, it enables us to humbly respect others. That feeds into leadership lesson number two. Good leaders focus on what God has done. Think about the last time Joseph saw Moses. Sorry, Jethro saw Moses. He was, I don't know when Joseph saw Moses. That's an entirely different story. Um, Jethro last saw Moses as Moses and Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer were leaving Jethro with nothing more than the four of them and their donkeys. That was it. Now you picture the scene as Jethro is coming into this camp at the mountain of God. 
as they're walking towards Moses' tent, they're navigating their way through an encampment of two million or so people. It's an absolutely massive context. And, and you can only imagine how easy it would have been for Moses to have wanted to just pick himself up just a little bit in his father-in-law's eyes to make him realize that he was the one in charge of all of this entire camp. And all of us know something of what that feels like. Because when we get to our own annual family get-togethers, or however often you have yours, and people are asking you how things are going and what's gone on, it's so easy for us to focus on how I've worked really hard over the past however long. And I've had to juggle so many plates. And, and I've had to push through this period of study for my exams. And I've had to work hard, but I've got the promotion that I was hoping for. Now, all of those things, they're real-life circumstances that we want to share with our families, and we should be sharing. There is this lovely sense at the beginning of chapter 18. We miss it a little bit in our translation. Um, But in verse 7, when it says they greeted each other, literally, it's picking up on a Hebrew idiom. Literally, it's saying um, they they gave each other the peace. The the shalom word is what's described here. There's a sense of they're asking about each other's welfare. So I'm not saying that Moses and Jethro didn't even talk about what's going on. We'll see that they did. But it's the way they, they focus on God's hand in all of it. He tells Jethro everything that's happened. But he does it in a very ordinary way. It's not, we all know people in our lives or perhaps in your past who, when they want to start talking about something Christian and spiritual, it can, the conversation can veer off in a slightly abstract theological discussion with, quite a, um, with a spiritual tone of voice that they wouldn't use to talk about anything else. And it all just feels a little bit weird and clunky. That's not what Moses is doing. If you look in verse 8, he is telling them their very real experience over the last few months. But he is explaining it in such a way that Jethro is absolutely clear that their history is his story. That's what Moses is doing. He's explaining all of the normal things that they've been through. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And he doesn't stop there. That would be tempting, wouldn't it? Because if you stop there, you could give the impression that, well, you've done really rather a good job. Because you've defeated the superpower and you've brought all of these people out of slavery. But he goes on. He tells him about all the hardships they'd met along the way. And that's not to get a sympathy vote. That's not to try and make Jethro think more highly of him. Moses said it so that Jethro could know how the Lord had saved them. That's what Matthew helped us see last week. When he got to the battle with the Amalekites, the big takeaway wasn't that the people were willing to fight or what they could achieve when they fought together as a team. It was that God was fighting with them and for them. And and Moses wants Jethro to get the same point. He wants Jethro to hear the story of God's people and think big thoughts about God, not about Moses. Good leaders focus on what God has done. Now, in Jethro's case, that 
testimony has a wonderful result. Because this man responds with genuine faith. Now, we don't know exactly where Jethro became a believer. By the time you get to verse 9, we know that he has been a pagan priest in Midian, but he's responding, he's delighting. That's quite an unusual word in the, in the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's a, a sense of it capturing the whole of his being. He's really captivated by all that God has done. And he, verse 10, he blesses the Lord. He, he confesses that Yahweh, using the covenant name of God, he's the one who's greater than all of the other gods everywhere. And he brings these sacrifices of devotion. And there's so many complexities in the sacrifices. We're going to get to them over the course of the next few months. Burnt offerings. Just think, the idea is that everything is taken, symbolically reminding us that we give all of our lives to God. That's the, kind of, that's the sense of complete rejoicing that Jethro has as he thinks about all that God has done. Which means, in God's grace... Over a 40-year period or so, at some point in that time, God has used Moses to bring his father-in-law to faith. That's not the main point of the passage, but it is a biblical principle. God will use you to bring people to faith, but it may not be in the time period that you would like. Don't stop. Just be faithful. Just keep focusing conversation in a natural, ordinary way on how God is at work in your life and in the world. And plead with him to save your family as he did in Moses' case. Leadership lesson number three. Good leaders are willing to change. Verse 13 reminds us just how much pressure Moses was under. His wife, his sons, his father-in-law, they've just arrived in the camp. Moses hasn't seen them for however long it is, but he hasn't even got time to take a day off and give them a tour and introduce them to all of his friends because the next day he was up early to serve as a judge for the people. And as Jethro is watching on, the whole thing strikes him as crazy. Because here is Moses functioning as the sole arbiter, dispute resolution, mediator, judge, and everything for a nation of about 2 million people. It's a big number. That's the entire population of Sheffield, Nottingham, and Newcastle coming to one man to resolve every dispute about the cattle that crossed over into his field, and he nicked my jumper, and I'm blah, 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 and on he goes. To one man. It's just utterly unsustainable. It's no wonder Jethro says he's worried about the burden being too heavy for Moses and wearing him out. But before we get to the solution, I want you to think about the situation. Because Moses, under God, has led the Israelites out of Egypt. I don't mean this in the wrong sense, but in real-life terms, they're his people. They're his responsibility. Chapter 19 tells us um, that we have been out of Egypt now for two months. So for at least that long, Moses has been the one who is the judge, the mediator, the covenant head of the entire people. That, that's what they know. 
And then Jethro arrives on the scene. And whether he was saved the day before, or whether he'd been saved a little while ago, and at this point is just sharing his faith, he's only arrived in camp the day before. And here he is, asking questions and coming up with lots of solutions for Moses. Lots of leaders would find that very hard. They're my people. Well, you try leading these people for two months and see if your good ideas are really going to work with these people. (laughs) You can imagine all of the reactions that Moses could have had. But there's none of that. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Moses knew that none of us have all the best ideas, which means good leaders are willing to change. Leadership lesson number four. Good leaders are wise about delegating. I don't mean good leaders delegate, though they do. Good leaders are wise about when to delegate and what delegating is going to mean and change for them. Let me show you what I mean here. Moses is tired. He was, if you flip back into verse, uh, chapter 17, he was tired in the battle with the Amalekites. But in that situation, Moses knew that it was his responsibility himself to be praying on behalf of the people. But he's tired, so what does he do? He gets Aaron and her to hold up his hands so that he himself can keep praying, but with the help of two others who are holding his hands up in dependence upon God. Now, here in Exodus 18, Moses is tired again. But what does Jethro help him to see is a solution to his tiredness. Here, Moses needs to delegate some of his work and equip and encourage others to be doing some of that work. It's not that Moses needs to be doing all of it. He needs to be getting other people to be doing some of it. And it takes real wisdom to know the difference between those two situations. Is this a situation where I need to keep doing this myself and others have to help me continue doing it? Or is it a situation where I need to stop doing some of these things because I'm not the only person that can be doing them? That's a wisdom call. A wisdom call that sometimes even a leader like Moses can't see himself and needs another person to help him see in order to make a wise decision about delegating. But good leaders also are wise about the changes that come from delegating. I read this book um, during my holiday last week, which is a book written about developing leaders within the church, about seeing how we can encourage and equip and give opportunity to men and women within the church so that we can grow them and their gifts as experience and opportunities grow. And Hamilton describes what he calls a leadership pipeline, which is a little bit like that. Looks a little bit like any organizational structure, I suppose. But he uses the pipeline language, and he, he suggests that in different ways, in different ministries, it's helpful to break down the different layers, he calls them, that you may be able to serve in in the local church. 
He talks about loads of things to do with this pipeline, how you help have clarity on vision, how you encourage people to come along, all that kind of stuff. One of the problems that he talks about is what happens if you appoint a new person to a position, say as a team leader there, and they don't adjust well to the role for all sorts of reasons. Perhaps they struggle to have less contact time with people. Or they might struggle with less frontline ministry opportunities. There's less time on the doors or speaking to neighbors or running the kids' clubs or whatever it might be. Or perhaps they just really miss the talk preparation time that they used to do. And as a consequence of any or all combination of those reasons, they really struggle in that role. What happens in Hamilton's pipeline? Well, they go backwards down the pipeline because they're struggling with what they've delegated. And so what they end up doing is going back to the work they used to do that they felt more comfortable doing and that people knew that they were good at doing. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out what's then going to happen to the leaders who are working at that layer, does it? Hamilton calls it a blockage in the pipeline. All of a sudden, there's a load of leaders who can't do the work they're supposed to be doing. So they're either going to go back further down the pipeline, or they're just going to stop working at all. I think there's a lot of really helpful insight there that we've seen in churches, you've seen it in your workplaces. Wise leaders like Moses know that as you delegate, as you entrust to the officials of the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, so your role changes. And that's a really good thing. It's a good thing because for the people, their problems are going to be resolved a whole lot quicker. It's a good thing for all of the new leaders that are going to give them the opp- given opportunities to serve because they're going to grow in their gifts and be able to develop in ministry too. And it's a really good thing for Moses because he's not going to die of overwork. <laughs> it's a good thing all around. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Delegating to others means you stop doing something you're good at. And you stop doing something other people know you're good at. And you stop doing other things people trust you doing because they know you're good at it. And for all of those reasons and many others, pride can make it very difficult for us to delegate well because it's hard to change. But good leaders are wise about not only when to delegate, but what changes when you do. That leads into lesson number five. Good leaders appoint other good leaders. Jethro is really specific about the kind of people that Moses should be looking for. Look at verses 21 and 22. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges. Let them serve as judges. There's your don't block the drain pipe principle. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. 
So what are Moses' four criteria for the judge's role? Capability, spirituality, integrity, incorruptibility. You can put that on a piece of branding and nobody would really know exactly what you're talking about. There's an easier way of describing it. What's Moses looking for? People who have the right relationship to the task at hand, to God, to people, and to money. That's the job description, the criteria, if you like, of the people that Moses is to be looking for. And sometimes it's... Sometimes when you're as stretched as Moses, you just need people. You haven't got time to think about the criteria and the things that would be really helpful for that person to fit the role so that they'll function well and be a blessing for the long term. And for some roles, you don't need to be that specific. You do just need people who are willing to serve. But for some leadership roles, where you need to exercise wisdom and give guidance, you need to be really clear about the kind of people you recruit. Good leaders appoint other good leaders, which for Moses meant he needed godly men who couldn't be bribed and who feared God. What's he doing? He's appointing judges. For 400 years, the Jews have been slaves in Egypt. There hasn't been a law school for the Israelites. There isn't an established court system for them to gain work experience. So what he needs is a foundation of character. On that, God can grow the expertise that they needed. Finally, good leaders point everyone to the greatest leader. Now, we've seen something of this already, but I want us to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, back in chapter 1, it's the very, sorry, verse 1, it's the very news that God has been doing all of this for Israel and how the Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt that brings Jethro and the family back to the mountain. And when Moses gets to speak to Jethro personally, verse 8, that's the very thing that he's focusing on. God has been doing all of this. But we need to go a step further. We need to see how Moses' own role as a leader is pointing us to a greater leader. Because it's not, the, the principle of Exodus 18 is not, God's at work all the time, and while he is, and we're trusting him to do that, here's a whole load of leadership principles for your life. That's not the final takeaway of Exodus 18. If it was, we would be tempted to idolize Moses, because he seems to get it right, overemphasize the importance of leadership principles and miss our need for a greater leader. Let me show you what I mean about pointing to a greater leader. Jethro's hinting at it in verse 19. For, for all the changes that Moses needs to make, for all the new judges that he needs to appoint, Jethro knows that there are some things, and in particular one thing, that only Moses can do. In verse 19, um, listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes 
to him. Moses can't delegate that role. That is God's appointed role for Moses and only Moses. No one else could do it. Other people could pick up the smaller cases of the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. But nobody else could pick up this role. There is a role that only Moses can do. Okay? Now, even in that role that only Moses can do, this passage reminds us that Moses is still pointing us to a greater leader that we all need. How? Firstly, Moses is going to die. And you can't be the covenant mediator. You can't be the judge. You can't be the one that brings the people's needs to God if you're dead. Secondly, just, just think about this comprehensive new legal system for a minute. There's now going to be, I don't know how many it was, tens, hundreds, thousands of judges to look after all of these different layers that Jethro had encouraged Moses to put in place. If you had a problem on Mount Horeb, you could go to one of these judges. The judges can help you. And if your problem's a really big problem, if it's a really complicated problem, if it's the kind of problem that actually none of the other judges have ever dealt with before, then you can still go to Moses. And Moses is the covenant mediator who can bring your case before the Lord and receive God's wisdom on how to respond to your situation. So if you've got a really big mess, Moses can help you. But for your greatest need, neither the judges nor Moses can do anything to help you. Because Moses can't change your heart. Moses can't deal with your sin before God. Moses cannot forgive you of your sin and give you eternal life. You see, even in the end, of Jeth- um, the end of chapter 18, when Jethro's brought all of this wisdom to bear and you've got a brilliant new judicial system, which, by the way, is basically what we've copied in the United Kingdom, and you've got all of this, this clarity about what it is that Moses and Moses alone can do, even when you've got all of that brilliant leadership principle in place, Moses doing his job to the best of his ability reminds us we need a better Moses. Because we need a, need a mediator of a better covenant. We need one whose wisdom is so great because he's divine, but he doesn't receive the dispute and take it to God seeking wisdom. He is God himself. We need one who can intercede with us perfectly with the Father. We need one who is a perfect disciple. So not only does he show us how to live, but he is at work within us, changing us to become more and more like himself. Even at his best, Moses is pointing us towards Jesus. He is the humble leader who alone can make us right before God. Jethro offered a sacrifice in the presence of God. Jesus became the sacrifice to bring us into the presence of God. But all the important leadership lessons we need to learn from Moses, don't miss the biggest one. could leave this morning and think, wow, I had no idea there were so many leadership principles in Exodus 18. 
going to change what we do at home. going to change what we do in business. going to change what we do in our school. You could do all of that. And everything in your life could work unbelievably efficiently. And everybody could think, you're a great leader, which you may well become. But if your life is not trusting the greatest leader of all, none of your hard work in this life will enable you to stand before the judge of heaven and earth when you die or he returns. All of these lessons about leadership are there for us to be good disciples and people of God in this world, but to show us our need for the only leader who can prepare us for the world to come.